Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tennis Relived, Wimbledon Relived, Day 3. We've taken a trip back to 1978 and 1980, and today we're taking a trip back to 1985. We are firmly now in the territory of uh, David Law's vast and cavernous memory. I don't know if that's a good thing, necessarily, but but it's where we are. How are you doing, David? I'm all right. I'm enjoying my trip down memory lane. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's... It's very interesting watching scenes from my childhood that I have not watched since and trying to find out whether my 12-year-old brain had any sort of accuracy in its uh, in its conclusions or not. You couldn't quite remember watching the 1980 Borg McEnroe final that we covered yesterday though you were aware of it in your consciousness. Do you remember watching Boris Becker, Kevin Curran, nineteen eighty-five. Do you remember where you were? Vividly, yes. Go on then. I would have more been... specifically. Do you remember what your haircut was like? Uh, it was appalling. Uh, <laughs> it was tw- it was probably quite similar to Kevin Curran's, if I'm honest. Um, all sort of curly and wafty. Um, so I would have been twelve years of age. I'd just uh, gone into the the senior school, as as we used to call it, um, and yeah, I was just watching Wimbledon back to back hour upon hour and and there was nothing else tennis wise to watch i didn't even know it existed i was absolutely fascinated after that tournament to try to find uh, opportunities to see a tennis match with boris becker playing somewhere else um to see because i couldn't understand how do, how does boris becker not win every tennis match that he plays given how hard he hits the ball i knew nothing of clay courts and hard courts and things like that did as a twelve-year-old seeing a seventeen-year-old win Wimbledon? Did it? Did it make you think? Oh crikey! I'd better you know start achieving some life goals. I remember. I remember watching the Dahl win the French Open and realizing we were the same age and thinking, Catherine, you've achieved nothing in your life. So, <laughs> sort, sort sort it out. I don't. know, It could go either way, couldn't it? It could inspire you, or it could make you just feel like an utter failure. No, honestly, no, because at 12, to me, 17 was really old and 17 was basically a man and I was, I was such a young child, um, uh, including for my age. But I 
look back at it now and it does make me shudder to think of what this we're having just watched it to watch this guy who's 17 who physically he is an incredible presence and he's muscular and strong and strapping but he's got this really young face and he you hear him we've just heard him interviewed after the match as well and and it does make me shudder to think, my word, this was on his shoulders. And yet it was also very exciting as, uh, at the same time. Matt, your formative tennis years will have been spent watching Boris Becker, the, the pundit, and Boris Becker, the coach. I know, obviously, you'll have been very aware of you know what he achieved in his career. But actually, watching it back and seeing a 17-year-old Boris Becker, what are you struck by? Well, it's actually quite difficult to reconcile, as you were saying, the Boris Becker I've always known with this Boris Becker. I actually think that this achievement of Boris Becker winning Wimbledon at 17, obviously I've always been aware of it, but and in many ways it's it's become a more extraordinary achievement as time has passed and as the sport has got kind of older and it's harder to make those breakthroughs so young. But also in a way it's actually one of those achievements which is so of its time that if you didn't live through it, it's really quite difficult to understand the impact that it had and the feeling that it gave people. So it's interesting to go back and read about it and watch it and hear David's memories of it. Um, I mean, what I'm struck by is the sense of belonging that he seems to have on that court. He is striding around the court like he owns the place. He would go on to say that it was his living room, didn't he? Centre court famously. But and it's like that. He's he's walking with such confidence, playing such tennis. Okay, it's one thing to have the game, it's another thing to believe in the game and know that it's a game that you can win. And that just comes through on just as you watch all the match really. I didn't walk anywhere with confidence when I was 17. No. I was just a, a crippled sort of ball of <laughs> angst <laughs> and and self-doubt. I mean, I, I just can't yeah, relate just to that sort of, at all. Just everyone stop looking at me. Or <laughs> yeah. Even though they're not looking at you, you, you think everyone is looking at you when you're that. Yeah, kind of I think my, my mum would describe that as the peculiar phase when you didn't like your photo <laughs> being taken. <laughs> Whereas I, I do recall in 85 and the, the months that followed in the summer that the local tennis court I would go to, you could see people adopting Becker's mannerisms as they walked around, chest out, really. The way he carries himself is of a of owning the place. Did, and did people stop peroxiding their hair? <laughs> no, I don't think that they did. It's and suddenly of course, gone out of fashion again in, in recent years. Boris must feel pretty annoyed at the leadership of some countries <laughs> that have that have made uh, bright blonde hair go quickly out of fashion and also <laughs> the name boris it, <laughs> oh crikey <laughs> double whammy <laughs> yes i wonder whether there was like a like more tennis injuries reported as people were practicing diving across the court on I on bet hard there were. courts i bet no there question were. about it because because he normalized diving mm. It was. I'm sure that there are moments you could find in the history books or, or or archives of people diving around, but not like he was. He made a technique and a tactic out of it. He was coming into the net. He was marauding in, and you will not get the ball past him unless it's the perfect passing shot because he would hurl himself like a goalkeeper, and he taught himself to dive. 
and be able to roll and get up again. And it just became a trademark of his. And he's ended up having hip replacements and knee replacements and, and ankle replacements. And I suppose we'll never know, but you've got to wonder if the, the way that he flung himself around a tennis court and the, you know, he, he turned tennis into an impact sport, didn't he? Yes. Um, if if that, you know, had any kind of an impact. Um, uh, we've jumped the gun somewhat by, by talking about tennis. If we could row back a bit here and make way for the, uh, for the most important portion of uh, of the daily podcast the scene set for 1985 it was the year when route 66 was removed from the u.s highway system i didn't realize it had been removed so um there we go new coke was introduced in what is uh, generally accepted as one of the biggest marketing blunders of all time it was hated and quickly removed from sale um the green new coke new coke Right. Yeah, I don't it was rem- like I don't they, they that. rebranded Coke with like new new recipe, and everyone right. was like, "Well, we liked old Coke." I, I I was remarking while we were watching it how suddenly from five years earlier, which we were watching yesterday, they'd added Diet Coke to the fridge on the court side uh, uh, next to the umpire's chair, which hadn't been released in 1980, but became a staple of my unhealthy childhood. <laughs> The entire history of the 80s charted through uh, Coke branding. Uh, Greenpeace ship, the Rainbow Warrior, was sunk in New Zealand by French agents uh, to stop her from interfering with a nuclear test. These are things that I didn't know about. I'm learning here. Microsoft released the first version of Windows. British scientists discovered a hole in the ozone layer. Presumably it had been there for a while. Um, Mikhail Gorbachev became the leader of the Soviet Union. The wreck of the Titanic was located. Uh, CDs were introduced. Nintendo released its first Super Mario Brothers. Um, the first ever UK mobile phone call is made by a man called, but made by Ernie Wise. Is that of Morecambe and Wise? I don't know. It does sound a bit suspicious. Eric, I thought it was... Eric Morecambe and... Ernie Wise. Uh, some, somebody Google that while I run through the list of... Uh, tennis players that were born in 1985. Gonna my, I thought you were going to say my dad's name when you said the first mobile phone call because <laughs> he had one of those house brick phones, you know, and he was so oh, proud. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, so did my dad. And I, it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened at the time. Careless Whisper by George Michael was the biggest selling single of the year. Bet you were into that, David. Massively. And Yelena Yankovic, Svetlana Kuznetsova, Joe Wilfred Songer, Stanford Rinker, Thomas Burdick and John Isner were born big year lots of players lots of players (laughs) kind of lost generation of players (laughs) in there isn't there there's a lot of great players who could have done even bigger things i feel like if they were born slightly earlier perhaps and if if this weren't a Wimbledon Relive podcast, if this were another podcast about something something else that happened in 1985, you would probably put Boris Becker wins Wimbledon as a 17-year-old in your bullet point list of of events that happened that year that, that cut through the noise and, and made an impact globally and outside of sport because it was that big a deal. It transcended... Yeah. It transcended sport. It it was a new story. He became a, well, like we were discussing with Bjorn Borg yesterday, although, you know, far more instantaneously seeming for Boris Becker, he became a rock star 
seemingly overnight. He became frighteningly famous, in particularly in Germany. They, they'd never had a, a player anything like this. They ended up having two in two years because Steffi Graf very soon came along and obviously outstripped Becker substantially in terms of career achievements. But in terms of just the wow factor of somebody walking into the into a room, I think also you add up to to the equation Boris's look, this strawberry blonde hair, and and no nobody looked like that. No 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 champion had ever looked like he looked. Um, and yeah, his age, 17. I, the fact that he's in our list and this is not the most memorable final says says a lot about it. As There are a lot of stories that we've had to leave out of the 14, but Boris was one of the first ones in. He, it, wasn't, it wasn't completely out of nowhere, um, his title, right? It was unexpected, but not a total bolt from the blue, not only because he'd won won Queens a couple of weeks before. Um, talk about that in a moment. But he'd also had a run at the Australian Open as a 16-year-old in 1984 um, to the quarterfinals there. And he'd reached round three of Wimbledon the previous year as well. But he, he tore ligaments in his ankle and he actually hopped to the net to shake hands with his opponent, Bill Scanlon, before being carried off the court on a stretcher. So that was his his memory of Wimbledon um, prior to to coming in 1985 and, and winning as a 17-year-old. But as I said, he had he had started making the biggest waves when he won the title at, at Queen's, the, the pre-Wimbledon warm-up event, just, uh, just a couple of weeks before Wimbledon. He beat the two-time Australian Open champion, Johan Creek, another South African, in the final. Um, and Creek had, had first come across him some time before. Let's hear from him. In 1984, I was walking to Ellis Park in Johannesburg to go and play the South African Open. And it's the weekend of the qualifying. And I hear this German guy swearing and fighting with a guy on the court as I walk by. And I look and I see this blonde, reddish-haired German guy, white skin, and he's burnt to a crisp because summer in South Africa in November. And he's fighting with Gunter Bosch. And I didn't know who they were. These two guys are at it, and the coach is kind of calming him down and da-da-da. So anyway, I didn't take any much more notice. I was just like, wow, that kid is pretty cocky with his coach. You know, he's telling him off and stuff in German. So anyway, I go and play. I go to the semis. And uh, the next year, I'm back on a tour. It's 85, and I'm playing Queens. And uh, didn't know who Boris Becker was. Didn't know. I, I, you know, I never look at the draw. I mean, I just play. I don't even look ahead what I make, nothing. I just play. Next player, I sort of know who they are. Maybe I'll go and check them out if I didn't, but I didn't check the So they say, oh, uh, you know, I'm in the finals and I'm playing a, a schoolboy from Germany. I'm like, huh, what an easy title this is going to be. <laughs> so I walk on the court and, uh, and I remember I played a pretty damn even till about three all. And then I had sort of a brain fart game that I served badly and I didn't play well. And then he ran off with the first set 5-3 and then ended up winning at 6-4. And then he just got confident, and I mean, he just started serving bombs. And I just remember it was for me, even though it looked now looking at that match, I don't have any of the butterflies and stuff. But I had never seen a guy with a grip holding the racket like sort of an eastern forehand grip, and could hit the ball that hard and flat with such leg jump and stuff. So it was an unusual action for his serve, and he could just absolutely destroy the the serve. So yeah, it was uh, really. Uh, eye-opener. So when he beat me in the finals, they said, well, you know, 
Uh, I remember this very stoic guy, I don't know who it was, in the press said, oh, Mr. Krieg, what do you think about this German schoolboy? And I said, well, if he serves like that, he'll win Wimbledon. Johan Krieg, the original Paul the Octopus. <laughs> Can we get him on the tennis podcast to just do our predictions for he us? Says, he says, I said, if he serves like this, he'll win Wimbledon. Who did he say it to and can they confirm that story? Well, he said it in the press conference. That's what he says. Right. Okay. Uh, I mean, look, it's a story that has always been around um, and has always been told, you know, with slightly different variations on it. But it's great to get it from him. Um, And I've seen the match back that they they played against each other. And I mean, that's how it comes across in the second set is just Boris has a – uh, once he gets confidence and gets on a roll, I, how do you stop him? I mean, he's he's got everything as a grass court player: a massive serve, muscularity. He's got this ability, despite his huge frame, to get around the court and lunge and jump and dive if necessary. How so? How do you get the ball past him? He's got a big forehand, the type of which okay, he's hitting it flatter maybe than players do today, but he's hitting that powerfully. Plus, he's got an, an enormous backhand, single-handed, but he wasn't just chipping it. He is driving it. He's often hitting it inside out, fading it away from from players with side spin, but but driving it. Um, so he kind of had everything back then, particularly for grass with its speed and its uneven bounces. really strikes me how different Boris Becker's tennis is to what we were watching just yesterday from five years earlier with Borg and McEnroe, where it's mainly about kind of finesse and placing the ball and court craft. I mean, Becker's got that ability, but it's it, it's the power that stands out. And just the way he took the sport to the next level in terms of that power is so, so obvious. And I think that Queen's final, it's almost like Creek wasn't wasn't even there on the, on the other side of the net because Becker was just serving winners and hitting him off the court. He was he was just having no impact on Becker's game. And I think the Wimbledon final, to a lesser extent, was a bit like that as well. So he comes into Wimbledon as the Queen's champion and uh, Johan Creek's pick for the title, and and being talked about, but but not necessarily being you know universally picked as the uh, as the future champion, or certainly not that year. Um, and things actually didn't go that smoothly for him in his run to the final. He had to save two match points to beat Joachim Nyström of Sweden, 9-7 in the fifth set in the third round. In the fourth round, he beat America's Tim Mayotte also in five sets. Um, and he was behind as well in the semifinals against Anders Jarid. He came through all of those. He ended up facing another South African, a fellow big server, Kevin Curran, ripe old age of of 27, 10 years Becker's senior uh, in the final. And Curran had actually been sharing notes with uh, Becker's beaten semi-final opponent, Anders Yared, ahead of the final. Let's hear from Kevin Curran. I remember talking to Anders uh, and he said to me, I was in total control of the match. He says, the next time, the next day we came out, it was really hot and sunny. And he said he blew me off the court. And kind of that's how he played in the finals. He played, I felt like he was going to have a thousand chances, uh, you know, fearless tennis. And he, he played like he had been there many times before. I took the attitude that if I just played within myself and I played my game, that he would self-destruct and the pressure would get to him, you know, as a 17-year-old. 
And I practiced with him in earlier that year in April. I think it was in Atlanta, an indoor event. And whilst I recognized he had a big game, lots of, of really powerful shots uh, that he could hurt you with, he was really inconsistent uh, that day that we practiced. And I, that was my thing, thinking this kid will never be able to play. And that's where I always believe the majors separate the men from the boys, is that to sustain it over a three, four-hour period, uh, a five-set match, that he would never be able to sustain that level and, and that there would be a few chinks in his armor. And uh, the actual occasion would get to him. So I wasn't uh, I wasn't overwhelmed by the fact that I had to play Becker, even though the British media were building him up with each win that he had along the way. Because keep in mind that he won the big uh, pre warm up to Wimbledon Queens, and he won it convincingly. You know, so he, he came in, and keep in mind he was also in the quarterfinals of the Australian Open in 1984. So it wasn't like he just came completely out the blue, but to do it on you know the greatest tournaments in the world on the biggest stage. That was the part that really impressed me that he that he could play under that sort of pressure as if he had been there, you know, half a dozen times and he knew what to expect. Uh, it seemed that he had that mental fortitude because I recall seeing McEnroe uh, afterwards uh, in, on the U.S. hard courts and uh, he said to me, I can't believe you lost that match. He says, the, the level at which you were playing. There's no way you could lose that match. And I said, Mac, he's a lot better than you think he is. And McEnroe ended up playing him two weeks later on hard courts. McEnroe was one in the world at the time and beat him 7-6 in the third, obviously two out of three sets in a tiebreak. And he came in and we were playing a doubles match after his singles. And he said to me, I see what you mean. The kid can play. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, Boris, I mean, proved it again. He came back in the following year, defended his title. Uh, he won a consecutive years uh, at 17 and 18, which is just an absolute phenom to be able to do it, you know, uh, at that age. Mm. I, I was actually just reading some quotes from the LA Times just ahead of your final. And Boris is saying, if I win this match, my life will change. And I mean, obviously, obviously it did change dramatically. I just wonder what, what his demeanor was like on the court as a, as a presence players have told me in the past that he he almost looks like he's trying to intimidate you the way he stares across the net what was it like yeah so guy guy said that he had this this self-belief and and and, and some people even said that you know changeovers looked like he was but you know sort of bumping shoulders with you i didn't really recognize that in the match what i was so focused on was how do i break this guy's serve because i thought i had a good serve and that's where i dominated McEnroe, connors and edberg to some extent was with my serve uh but what i found with him it was a really hot day Balls are moving around quickly. Plus, we played with lighter balls than they do today. So the serve was always a massive factor in those days on grass. It was a much quicker uh, surface and lower bouncing than it is today. So I was having trouble that uh, this guy's consistency on his first serve. And then when he did miss the first serve, he had a really, really heavy second serve. You know, So I hadn't really faced that a little bit against Edberg, but not against McEnroe Connors. And so that was my difficulty is I lost serve, I, I recall, my very first service game. So I hadn't dropped serve against Edberg, McEnroe Connors, nine sets of tennis. And I get out there and my very first serve, uh, I dropped serve. And then I was behind for, it took me, I think it was about two, an hour and nearly two hours before we were in the third set where I finally broke him and got ahead in the match uh, for the first time in the match. I got a 4-3 to go break to serve. And I felt like I was now in, I was in control of my serve. He wasn't really, he wasn't really bothering me too much on my serve. 
So I felt now I've got now I've finally got him. I've got a chance to win this match. But it'd taken, like I say, nearly two hours to get to that point. And he broke me back immediately. He played two great uh, points, I remember, and two good passing shots. And uh, it kind of shocked me, and I was furious. I was livid with myself because I'd worked so hard to get in this winning position after being behind the entire time and struggling to break his serve. And now I'd given it back immediately. And I remember going into the tiebreaker. And and I was still furious with myself that I'd let him in. End up losing a, a tough tiebreaker. He played really well. And then lost my serve first game of the fourth. Again, I was furious with myself with losing that tiebreaker. And it was more the fact that I'd had this chance to get ahead and now I thought I had him and losing that momentum. Uh, and he just, like I say, on the day, he served like he was going to have a thousand chances to play that match, you know, over and over. And uh, it was testimony to the makeup of the kid at 17 years of age. But a lot of guys haven't given enough credit to, I think, his support team. So he had a very good coach that had worked with uh, from, from a young age. And he had a guy named Jan Tiriak, who was one of the toughest guys mentally in the game. He used to play Davis Cup for Romania with Elena Stasi. And whilst Jan was never a great player, he always had this incredible mental fortitude and, and, and belief. And, and I think the fact that he was in his corner at such a young age also was instrumental. Yeah. yeah I was just thinking, you, you, you were 27 at the time. He was 17. If you'd have won, I'm, I mean, it would have been obviously a big deal. But what it became for him, it seemed to just get out of control. I just wonder if... if, if you, would would you, as the kind of character that you are, would that have been something you would have not wanted to have been in his shoes, given what he, what then happened to him? Oh, most definitely, you know, because I think that's part of of that sort of status. McEnroe, Connors, all of them had it, and and your personality, my personality, wasn't cut out for that. I was more. Uh, withdrawn, wanting to, you know, enjoyed playing the game and the competition side of it, but I was never enamored with uh, with all the media and and all the attention, and, and that that was never part of my makeup. But you know, the Germans were looking for a champion, and obviously Steffi had had set the bar on the women's side, but to do what he did at the age he did, he became an instant superstar, and then was able to back it up with the longevity. You know, had a great career. It was unbelievable in Davis Cup. And I've often said to guys that ask me, well, who did I rate the toughest out there to, you know, to play? And I said, well, mentally, if there were two guys that I would choose if they had to play for my life would be McEnroe and Becker. I said, the bigger the occasion, the more pressure, the better they seem to play. They thrived on that pressure. And there's very few athletes that you, you, you can say that about where the bigger the, the point or the pressure. And he showed that in Davis Cup as well. He had some amazing wins for Germany and Davis Cup. You know? uh, so, so yeah, he, he had that makeup. It was part of his, I felt like on the day, I was playing against a whole German Panzer division rather than you know, just one guy. I just felt that whatever I did, it was this incredible power and, and it just uh, it seemed like uh, it was very hard to break through. Absolutely fascinating and a really lovely sounding guy. He referenced it there, but on route to the final, he beat, well, Stefan Edberg as well, but, but John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors and he was the first person ever to do that. <laughs> and he, yeah. he he's actually asked by by Bud Collins in in one of his many iconic 
uh, post Grand Slam final bun fight kind of uh, interviews that that we've watched Bud do uh, over the course of the last few weeks. He he puts that question to him. He says, "Could you ever have imagined that you would beat John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors and not win the title?" And Kevin Curran just has this look in his eye and he says, "Not in a million years." Yeah. And he beat them in straight sets. I mean, he absolutely thrashed them. Um, and his back then, I I really warmed to Curran. I loved the way he played. And I, to be honest, I, I, I I'm embarrassed. <laughs> he, he, he's underplaying it, folks. <laughs> it, we we discovered swiftly upon our our uh, our watchathon this morning that David. David Law is the world's biggest secret Kevin Curran fan. This has been yeah. the big revelation of the day. <laughs> it's awesome. It was great to relive it. Um, but, you know, he had this huge serve. He knocked out McEnroe, who to me was the all-conquering tennis player. He'd won in 83 and 84 and 81. So three of the four years that I'd been watching tennis, McEnroe had been the champion, only edged out by Connors in 82 in an absolute classic. And I was angry at McEnroe as well because he'd he'd won the last two finals in straight sets, making them really boring uh, to, to me, to, to my 12-year-old eyes. So all I wanted was somebody to knock him out and change things because I was bored of it. And also he was always in trouble and he was nasty to people. So I didn't want him to win. And along comes Kevin Coven, Curran, lovely Kevin Curran with his big game and he smashes past McEnroe. And, for, and I don't know, I could I could I, I I was a little bit of I was a little bit anti the popular feeling because everybody was interested in Boris Becker and this wonderful seventeen year old story. Because of that, I didn't want it to happen. I wanted the other bloke to win because nobody was talking about him. Um, but it was really something to witness how Becker just, as you kind of described about the way he played against Johan Creek, just takes the play away, just makes the opponent kind of irrelevant and. There are very few players who have that ability to just render an opponent completely unable to do anything. And it also really sounded like Curran was surprised by how well Becker returned the ball in that interview he gave with Bud Collins. You know, Curran had served McEnroe and served Connors off the court and suddenly he's playing Becker, who everyone's talking about his serve, and actually he finds that his own serve is coming back because Becker's able to hit solid returns off both wings and I, I think he created a lot of break points in that final and Curran barely got any on the Becker serve so you know he was having to deal with Becker's serve but also his return game um, and a, a, a little story I found that um, a bit like how Andre Agassi in 1999 at the French Open went to see Bruce before playing his Grand Slam final Kevin Curran did the same thing before this Wimbledon final except it didn't uh, didn't work out so well for him. Can you confirm or deny, Matt, that Bruce schedules his uh, uh, tour geography around Grand Slam Grand Slam <laughs> tournaments? No, no, the Grand Slam I mean, schedule around Bruce. Oh, I set you up for that, didn't I? Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there were echoes in uh, what what Kevin Curran was saying to you, you there, David, of of what Sergio Bouguera said when reflecting on his. French Open final in 97 against Guga Quirton that he was just completely guilty of underestimating him, underestimating how well the young upstart would deal with the occasion. They, but uh, Bruguera and Curran both went into their finals thinking, 
I'll just play a solid game and let him implode, let him struggle to deal with the nerves and the occasion. And, and they didn't know what they were dealing with, frankly. It's one of the things that I love about watching Grand Sam finals, particularly when you get somebody playing one who hasn't played one before. And you'll, you, you can sometimes get the player that just is a rabbit in headlights and, and just can't cope really with the occasion and others who just come alive and r- peak, raise their level for the occasion. Um, and it, it feels quite satisfying to me that a seven or eight out of 10 performance is not going to get it done from a, from a, an established player that, that you have to, you have to bring it. And if you don't, somebody's going to knock you off. And that's what happened in those two occasions. And there have been many more aside. Think of when Marit Safin won the US Open age 20 and, and people like this. It's, um, that's what you want, really, from a Grand Slam final. Yelena Ostapenko was the, the one you were you meant to say there, right? Well, I mean, that's the ultimate, isn't it? And, yeah. uh, and because she and she did it mid-match. That's the other <laughs> yeah. thing. She, she couldn't hit a barn door. And then suddenly <laughs> she was the greatest player of all time for about an hour. I, I, love, I love hearing about pe- hearing people recall their, their first recollections or what their first feelings were about people that we now feel that we know inside out. You know, Boris Becker is... Is part of the zeitgeist, isn't he? He's just a part of the the tennis sporting world consciousness. So hearing people remember what their first impressions of him were when he was just a a, a scrawny sixteen year old, whatever, I find fascinating. And I found I found some quotes from from John McEnroe in a in a BBC Sport piece um, after McEnroe experienced him for the for the first time in in Milan in March of 1985, so just a few months before uh, Becker went on to win Queens and Wimbledon. He said, I actually played him about uh, four months before Wimbledon that year and he was sort of bitching and whining and complaining to a lot of umpires, McEnroe remembers. (laughs) I remember saying to him at the time, why don't you win something before you start complaining? Little did I think that at 17, four months later, he would take me at my word. (laughs) So it seems to me that McEnroe's policy is... Bitching and whining is and complaining to umpires is fine, but you need to have won something first to justify it. Yeah, that's the policy mm, I, there. Yeah, I, I I think it kind of is. Although I think it's fair to say McEnroe didn't necessarily take his own <laughs> advice um, <laughs> on that one. But yeah, I, th- I think there is a bit of that. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Should we hear from Stefan Edberg, a man who came through the ranks with, with Boris Becker, played junior tennis with him? I think they met in the first round of junior Wimbledon in 1983 um, and, and Becker got the, the best of Edberg on that occasion but they you know they met so many times throughout their careers um, was Edberg surprised when his contemporary broke through age 17? I was probably as surprised as everybody else when he won Wimbledon in 1985 I hadn't even won my first Grand Slam at the time and then obviously gave me also some confidence well if he can go and win at this age um, so can I and, and, and back in uh, in December 1985 I won my first Grand Slam event in Australia um, yeah so it was a great rivalry in many many ways and obviously I think the highlight was probably us playing three Wimbledon finals in a row uh, nearly a fourth one uh, stumbling against Michael Stitch uh, that following year yeah, great memories. That you yeah. you say there that it was as surprising to you that he won in eighty five as it was to everybody else. So you didn't see that coming at all. I mean, obviously he he physically he was he was like a man, so young, wasn't he? I mean, a little bit like Nadal. He, he looked so physically imposing. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, they probably had some similarities in many ways. Yeah, I mean, he physically was incredibly strong at the time, and obviously. He won, I think, Queens in 1985 as well. So at least he was up on the radar screen. But, you know, being 17 and a half as he was at the time to, to go up and win Wimbledon, I mean, uh, that was uh, fascinating. But he did a lot great for tennis as well, uh, especially for German tennis. And, um, and uh, everything was booming <laughs> in many, many ways. Uh, so I think it was, it was a really, really great thing for tennis when Boris won his first Wimbledon title. Title, so it, it was good for everybody. I imagine it was interesting in the locker room at that time. You had so many established champions that everybody knew: McEnroe, Connors, Lendl, players like that. And then 
obviously you're you're coming along and you got there pretty quickly as well but he he came like a bolt from the blue it must have it must have surprised a few people in that locker room Oh, we sure did, yeah. I mean, it was uh, quite incredible when these things happen because it doesn't happen very often. And obviously, he was nearly out of the tournament when he twisted his ankle in, I don't know, in round two or three or something. So he could have actually dropped out by then, but somehow he got back. And uh, you have another few times which I sort of discovered was uh, back in, um, was it in 19... 82 when Matt Willander won the French Open um, you know at the very early stage there was a huge surprise to everybody else as Michael Chang uh, winning at uh, at the French Open in 1989 yeah so these things will happen once in a while but it's very doubtful you know winning a slam at 17 18 years of age is going to happen today that is very very unlikely uh, if not impossible the way tennis has sort of progressed uh, throughout the decades what did Boris have that was special as a as a rival for you? Um, well, I I, I, th- I think he had he had what a champion has. You know, he could always lift himself for the big occasions. He would always play really well getting into the finals, and um, at the same time, you know, he was a great personality. Um, in many ways as well, um, physically strong. And, um, you know, he was, was a player that a lot of people wanted to watch. Mm, yeah, he, he sure was. And it's interesting, isn't it, that you are so different in your personalities. And I, in a way, I liken it to, to Borg and McEnroe, who were very different but always got along. You seemed, from the outside, you tell me, but it seemed like you and Boris actually got on well. Uh, yeah, I think uh, throughout the career, there's always going to be, uh, you know, a sort of a, a challenge between one and another when you're on top of the game. But it was always a friendly atmosphere, uh, which I think I had to to all players <laughs> to, to 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 say. And um, yeah, and you know, we never had any problems getting along. And I think uh, it's even you know more friendly at the time now when we both can look back at our careers and uh, you know we have so many things in common so many memories so many matches and you know we we spent uh, so much time in the locker rooms and um, you know as juniors and and, you know now we don't see uh, each other very often but when we do see each other it feels always special to meet the lovely Stefan Edberg there sounding suspiciously like Mary Carrillo doing an impersonation of Stefan Edberg (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i think that's what he was going for um <laughs> he is lovely isn't he and uh he he's so shy he's so un unenthusiastic about doing interviews quite honestly he'll do a, he'll do the odd one but i i had to really convince him to to do that interview um it took took about a week to get his agreement um but i always think of the two of them in the same breath because when you you asked about or you you were talking about first becoming aware of Boris Becker. The first time I ever saw Becker um, was playing against Stefan Edberg. I, I think at a junior event, not at Wimbledon, but but um, but in the UK, an indoor event in the UK, and and Becker won the match. And that, and I was I was sort of supporting Edberg. I don't want to sound like I'm this mad anti Becker f- <laughs> person, but but I was but I was I decided I liked Edberg. And that, so they came up together. They had, as he said there, the, the three iconic Wimbledon finals back-to-back in between 88 and 90, Edberg winning two, Becker winning one. But the 
although they got along, the differences in their lifestyles could not have been more different. Edberg quietly played his career, got married, had kids, retired, and we know he's coached Roger Federer, but he's basically led a very quiet life. He's he's worked in finance for, for the last however many years, and, and I dare say he's... He's got a very, very comfortable existence. Boris Becker's lifestyle has been turbulence personified. It is, I mean, how could, in a, in a way, how could it not be winning Wimbledon at seventeen? But then I think Rafael Nadal had a very different experience, having won as a very young age. Um, the fame that greeted Becker, it felt like he just wasn't ready for really, um, and he does talk about having almost been relieved the US Open to have lost and not ended up playing John McEnroe just because of the sheer amount of hype that was going around about him. He was so well known in Germany that it, he couldn't go anywhere. He couldn't do anything without being mobbed, without being stopped. And if you – I don't know Boris Becker well. I've interviewed him a few times, but he, his, we, we've read a lot of interviews with him. We've, we've, we've read a lot about his life and – it's been all over the place, quite honestly. He he won six Grand Slam titles. He was he was a really great player. I think he he could have done even more given the tools he had. Um, but he won three Wimbledon titles. He won the Australian Open, the U.S. Open, semi-finals of the French was the best he did there, and, and some wonderful wins at the ATP Finals at the end of the year. He got to world number one, so he did a lot on the court. But you know his his private life was was difficult for him at every turn and you know we've read a lot of stories over the last couple of years bankruptcy selling his trophies um untold riches and then financial problems it would appear so he's had a really really messy life but the flip side is i know people who would say he's had a very exciting life (laughs) i suppose it depends which way you come at it yeah, I was surprised by how quickly it seemed to impact him that US Open you referenced there just mere months after this Wimbledon win. Because obviously, when you just look at the career arc of Becker, you think, oh, well, he defended his Wimbledon title the next year. Maybe things were going swimmingly. But it seems that right away, the level of impact just kind of was too much to bear. I think he got a he got a congratulatory telegram from the Chancellor of West Germany straight after. I mean, getting your head around that as a 17-year-old, arriving back in Germany, and I think he said, sorry, in West Germany, I think he said that his town had 20,000 people and he got off the plane and there were 50,000 people there suddenly. And people have likened his fame in Germany to the sort of fame that Michael Jordan experienced is over his basketball career and just... I don't know this this idea that success in many ways can make can make life easier but it can make living a lot harder because you've got a lot more to deal with and it doesn't seem that he maybe surrounded himself with the people to help him through that I mean maybe Nadal perhaps that was something that Nadal had that Becker didn't um yeah um because seeing him now is is quite quite sad in a way he's become almost the butt of some jokes and a bit of a caricature of himself and knowing that he had this incredible tennis career to have spiralled into the life that he's had is, um, I don't know, it's it's just a bit, just a bit difficult. Too often 
certainly not just Becker, but players that have extraordinary success very young, it feels like there's an element about them that's kind of frozen in time at that age, at that moment when they they first had their their taste of success in stardom. And I think there is there is an element of that with with Boris Becker. You know, w- w- was he ever able to do any 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 real growing up beyond that point? I read that. Um, his his grandfather, after whom he was named, his middle name's Franz, after after his grandfather, um, he passed away on the eve of Wimbledon in 1985, um, and his parents debated whether or not to actually tell him about that, and eventually they decided they they should tell him, and they did, and and Becker says he he sourced emotional strength from that, but you know it occurred to me hearing about you know that that trip back to Germany and what he was confronted with and the instant fame and fortune, would he ever have had a chance to, to grieve his grandfather's death? You know, or, or from that moment onwards, literally from, from that moment, once the Wimbledon 85 started, he was just on a treadmill, wasn't he? And I know aspects of that treadmill were absolutely fantastic and, and wonderful. And I know some people find it hard to feel too much sympathy for for someone with great fame, fortune, and success, but asking a seventeen-year-old to to deal with all of that without without the the opportunity really to do <laughs> some very necessary, essential aspects of growing up and and you know rites of passage and milestones and so on is is an incredible ask. Mm. He he grew up in front of our very eyes there's a, there was a really good interview with him this week by Mike Dixon in the in the mail that, that I, I'd recommend anybody reading just to get a to try to get Boris's view on what it was like back then because I'm not I must say I'm not always convinced that that he will have the sort of recollection that uh, that maybe somebody detached from it might have who was there fly on the wall type of experience but but it is it is interesting the detail he he seems to remember that particular Wimbledon in um there's another piece that that I read a short while ago um by Scott Price from Sports Illustrated who who also pointed out that when Boris Becker's married for the first time uh, to Barbara Felters he he had to deal they had to deal with an incredible level of racism um within Germany because he was marrying a black woman and it was it was it was awful what 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 they had to deal with and and he stood up as as strongly as he possibly could to that um and i yeah i just feel like at every stage of his life it has been turbulent he he's never had a quiet life it would appear but i also don't know whether he ever could have done i don't i don't know a whether that was possible and b whether he ever wanted that i think he was probably slightly addicted to the lifestyle that that he ended up having yeah it, it my experience of him and i've always you know enjoyed working with him he's always been i i don't ever really feel like i've got to know him but he's always been extremely polite and, and pleasant and everything um but it my experience or my my interpretation of of sort of observing him at, at Grand Slams and so on is he's caught caught between a rock and a hard place. He he kind of resents and and, and detests the the downsides of the attention, but he also completely requires it. He 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 feeds off it. He needs it. I don't know if he knows how to exist 
without it. You can see, you know, when he's, of course, he attracts his, he's instant rec- instantly recognisable in a crowd. He's got that shock of blonde hair. Um, and whereas Mats Verlander walks around Roland Garros with, with a baseball cap on, sort of with a shuffly demeanour so as not to be recognised, Boris Becker wants to be recognised and that's fine. But But elements of that, you know, also make him uncomfortable. And, and it's this, you know, it's almost this Stockholm syndrome type relationship with, with fame and notoriety. Yeah, there's an interview with him in The Guardian in 2009, where there's it's like a profile interview that they're having, that's, I think, conducted in a restaurant, and the restaurant has closed off a private part in the back for them to have the interview. And Becca says, Oh, no, let's sit out the front here in, in the front window. And he has his back to the window so that he doesn't have to see people walking past, but he will know that everyone will kind of recognise him by the back of his head. And and the writer says it's like he lives his life in the front window in terms of wanting that, wanting that attention. And it does feel like he's not, he's not content with being Boris Becker, six-time Grand Slam champion, three-time Wimbledon champion. He's had to, he's had to find these ways, whether it be, the poker or the commentary or the coaching or whatever else it is to sort of, I don't know, maybe justify in his own mind the fame he had or just still be relevant today. And he just seems to find these ways. And a lot of the time it gets him into trouble and um, he's he's his own worst enemy in that sense. Quite tough to see him physically these days when we're at Grand Slam tournaments. You see Stefan Edberg and they're similar ages. I think Edberg's a little older. but he, I mean, he, it's, he, not, it's not fair, David, to compare any man with Stefan Edberg who hasn't <laughs> aged since 1986. <laughs> no, no. Well, that's true. But Boris, I mean, he's had so many surgeries, knees, ankles, properly reconstructive surgery to to rebuild parts of of his joints and when you actually see that match he played against Curran today and and even more so I think when you watch him on hard courts and indoors against Sampras and and Agassi and players like that and and still serving a volleying still coming to the net still lunging with these enormously heavy limbs that he had he was so heavily muscled just a big strapping guy carrying a big weight around and he was incredibly athletic for somebody of his size he could make that work as a career but the the stress that that has clearly put on his body over the years is it has told and he he yeah he shuffles around now and it's it's quite hard to see yeah i got i got advice from boris becker on uh how to maneuver on crutches <laughs> Um, Did you yeah, take which that is advice? which is a sad story in itself. I, 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 I mean, I was taking any advice <laughs> I could get at the time, Matt. It wasn't pretty in the early days. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, it is. I mean, he's. I mean, I'm. I'm sure a lot of it is 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 really bad fortune. But um, yeah, what's happened to his body over the years is is incredibly sad. You know, I, I mean, he's partly recognisable because of because of his his gait um and it's hard for him to escape crowds because he can't move that quickly um yeah it's it's um he can cut quite quite a forlorn figure um 
But he can also still cut a really electrifying figure because he does still have that shock of blonde hair and he is so, so magnetic still. It's all these bundles of contradictions. You, um, you spoke to him, David, at the Australian Open this year, briefly, I think. Um, and we're going to hear, um, uh, a, a, a quite a poignant clip from uh, from that interview now, quite a short one, um, and you'll hear why. Um, because you asked him at the end of that interview what advice now, aged 52, he would give to his 17-year-old self, and this is what he had to say. It's a long time ago, my friend. I'm 52 years old now, so I don't, I don't uh, remember too much when I was 17. Um, in a time so different, we had no internet... Uh, the world was different uh, in the tennis you know thankfully you had we had tennis tournaments but it was very different to now so um, you know if, if all the things I know now if I would have known them at 17 or 20 obviously my, my career would have been a bit different probably more successful not, not saying mine wasn't but uh, uh, you're always smarter when you get older and you would do things differently uh, uh, 25 years ago Short shrift? Is that how we'd describe that? Well, I was part Shortish of a group. Shrift. I, I was part of a group um, talking to him about tennis today and all those sort of things. And actually, I mean, the parallel I was drawing really was Coco Goff at, at the age of 14, 15, trying to navigate her way in this sport and getting all this attention. And I've always been fascinated by Boris, having seen him at 17. I've always wondered what he makes of it all, whether, whether he's ever had ch- properly chance to think back and think, oh, I wish I'd. I wish I hadn't done this or that, you know, and I just wanted to ask him. He he wasn't, I don't think he was very happy with the question, to be quite honest with you. I, d- I don't think he, I don't think he liked it particularly. You probably heard that. Um, and I but, think but, that but that, that pr- tells you something, doesn't it? I think His so. discomfort I, with the question. When I, when I think back to, I'm not, I'm not judging him here, but think back to how incredibly reflective Chris Everett was mm. about her, you know her experience of of success young and 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 what she now considers to be poor decision making and and how open and and undefensive she is about those aspects of her life i mean she's you know she's obviously been through therapy and and really worked hard on on all of that but boris sounds to me like he's taken the other road of sort of just not wanting to not wanting to think about it not wanting to reflect no. on it Head, head down, move forwards is, is how, how he comes across. I, I also did just want to briefly touch on his coaching career because he was with Novak Djokovic as part of that team for three years. And it's always difficult to know how much impact a coach is having on a player or or versus how much impact, say, Marion Vider had. But Novak Djokovic had enormous success during that period as well. And, and I do feel that just the messaging of somebody who's, who'd been there and done it did help Djokovic for a period, particularly at a time when I think he was probably feeling a little bit inferior in his own mind to Nadal and Federer, just in terms of the the kind of stature they had in the sport, even though his, his own achievements were, were spectacular on their own. I think just having Boris in his corner really helped him feel bigger than even he was. Yeah, I think there was a period there where, I mean, because Djokovic had that breakthrough in 2011, but then it slightly stagnated. He was still kind of the best player in the world, but he wasn't transferring it into slams. I think 
2012 and 2013, he only won one slam and then he comes and then Becker comes along and yeah, you're right. I mean, the best period of Djokovic's career coincided with Becker being in his box in terms of 2015, especially, and also 2016. And he turned into this incredible big match player, Djokovic. And mm. that is something that um, Kevin Curran just said in that interview that we heard that if he wanted a player to play in a big match, it was Boris Becker. And it's yeah. it's kind of difficult to put your finger on maybe exactly what, what that was. And but maybe it's just something anybody. Becker said to him. Yeah. Boris never feared any opponent or any occasion. He, The bigger the opponent, the bigger the occasion, the bigger he became. He pushed out his chest and he, he seemed to grow a couple of inches. And, and yeah, what a, what a force he was. And if you're ever in need of any um, inspirational quotes, they can be found daily on uh, Boris's Instagram page, hashtag word. Excellent. <laughs> um yeah, so that's Boris Becker, youngest ever Wimbledon champion. He must have been annoyed when Michael Chang came along and won the French <laughs> Open a couple of years later. Um, just uh, mere days younger than him to, to steal the youngest male Grand Slam champion title away from him. But he's still the youngest Wimbledon champion. Will it ever be broken, that one? I mean, I'm not sure it will. I mean, to say never feels ridiculous, but I, I don't see it being broken in the foreseeable future tennis would have to change substantially for it to be broken i mean the age of maturation for male tennis players is getting older not not younger um so there'd have to be a significant shift in direction of travel there for it to be broken but it surely will be one day where are we going tomorrow matt we are going to 1991. I'm ex- very, the 90s. Ex- very excited about this. A, the 90s, and B, because it's Steffi Graf versus Gabriella Sabatini in an absolute classic final. If it, 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 One of the main things that, that Tennis Relived has done for me is make me into a massive Gabriella Sabatini fan. <laughs> Again, I mean, I was sort of aged five because i liked her hair but now i'm a more more mature considered gabriella sabatini fan a later doctor i was going through a gargantuan rough patch uh, (laughs) boris becker style so uh in 1991 yeah are are these the lost law years (laughs) these the uh these this is the utter derailment of the law i cannot wait uh that's for tomorrow day four of wimbledon relived um i'm absolutely loving them I really am. It's it's uh, it's such a joy and such a pleasure. Boris Becker is the perfect example of one where I knew he won Wimbledon in 1985 as a 17-year-old, and and probably previously I felt like it was it was enough to know that. But but now I know all the richness of the context and the stories behind it and the significance of it, and and um, yeah, I'm so glad I know all of that. And um, I'm so glad I've had the opportunity to have Matt's current lockdown hair compared to Kevin Curran's circa 1985. That also was a treat. By David, I should say, not by me. Um, Hello to Gerald, our Wimbledon mascot. Excellent, excellent Gerald. Uh, Building up a head of steam on Instagram. He's practically an influencer now. Um, He won't need us soon. But hello, Gerald. Uh, And thank you, David and Matt. We'll be back tomorrow with Graf against Sabatini and our first trip to the 90s. We'll see you then. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.